Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and our academic programs team connects college and university students with our nation's leading scholars. And we do this through campus events, reading groups, summer seminars, and conferences in D.C. and around the country, and through this podcast, the Campus Exchange. If you're a student and you've been enjoying this podcast where students are interviewing scholars, or if anything else we do here at AEI sounds as terrific to you as it does to me, hit subscribe on this show in your podcast player and go to AEI.org and find the For Students page in the About tab. You'll be very glad you did because there is where you can see all the ways to get and stay engaged with AEI as a college student. Today in this episode of the Campus Exchange, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between AEI scholar Elizabeth Bra and Executive Council student Aaron Hodgson discussing gray zone warfare and hybrid threats. Enjoy the show. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Aaron Hodgson, and I'm a junior at Abilene Christian University studying international relations and German language. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Elizabeth Bra, who is a senior fellow at AEI, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges such as hybrid and gray zone threats. She's a columnist with Foreign Policy, where she writes on national security and the globalized economy. Before joining AEI, Elizabeth was a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London, where she founded and led its Modern Deterrence Project. She has also worked for Control Risks, a global risk consultancy. Elizabeth attended the University of Hagen in Germany, graduating with a master's in political science and German literature. She has a bachelor's from Friedrich Schiller University, Jena, in Germany. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. To start out, could you briefly describe gray zone aggression for those who are not familiar with what it is and provide a recent example? Yeah, so gray zone aggression is something that that, uh, most people think is new and it has... uh, has grown explosively in, in, in the past couple of years, but it's it's very easy. It's aggression below uh, the, the threshold of armed military violence. So it's it's aggression that takes place in the gray uh, zone between war and peace. It's activities that, that you know when you see them are aggression, but yet it's not military violence. So it's hard to say, oh, uh, is, is this something we should do something about? And so it can be things like China building artificial islands. Uh, you know, when you see the islands that China was not allowed to build islands, but yet it happened. Uh, it's also things like uh, Belarus uh, weaponizing migration, so bringing uh, thousands of migrants to Belarus and then uh, sending them to the border with Lithuania, Latvia, and Poland to, to uh, where they crossed in. And then the idea was that uh, that they would cause a, a migration crisis in the European Union. It's also cyber, it's malign influence, and it's also things that, uh, having to do with subversion of the economy, for example, IP theft uh, on a systematic scale. So, uh, but but the point uh, I would make, Aaron, is that it, these are examples that have happened, and in the gray zone between war and peace, you can keep innovating, and that is the challenge. So we we can't know what we are looking for until it happens. But it would be nice to to have some sort of sense of what might happen, so we can better defend ourselves. But uh, the other side can keep innovating, and it's very hard to, to know what's in their hands. 
Yeah, yeah. In in your recent book, The Defender's Dilemma, you talk about how deterrence against gray zone threats is a sort of catch-22 because the kinds of actions deemed acceptable differ within various regime types. Um, So what do you envision the defense against gray zone threats to look like in a perfect world? And what do you anticipate it to look like in actuality under the Biden administration? Defense against gray zone aggression has to involve all parts of society. And that's what makes it so different from defense against military aggression, because the, the, the part of society tasked with and defending the country against military aggression is the, the military. And so it's clear that, that that's their job. When it comes to gray zone aggression, it's not clear whose responsibility it is. But uh, because uh, gray zone aggression can appear in any guise, any target, any part of society, it's clear that all parts of society have to be involved in defending that country against it. It can be people like you and me are in, in knowing uh, how to verify information so that we don't inadvertently spread disinformation and uh, as a result aid uh, malign influence campaigns. It can be companies um, because they are often targeted by, by gray zone aggression, as, as I mentioned. And so they need to work cl- more closely with the government to make sure that, that they that the government uh, receives sort of early indications whenever something is afoot, but also that, that companies receive warnings from the government when it has spotted something. Um, and it's also, it can be, for example, um, well, it can be all age groups. Uh, so, for example, teenagers, uh, I think something that would be fantastic is if teenagers uh, did resilience training. It could be voluntary uh, um, uh, resilience training involving first aid, information literacy, uh, basic skills in in uh, uh, knowing what to do if the internet goes down, if power goes out, uh, so that uh, every town and city would have this critical mass of people who know what to do in a crisis, who would be able to, to obviously uh, uh, fend for themselves, but also help others. And the, the as we saw during the pandemic, uh, most people don't have the foggiest idea what to do in a crisis. And as a result, they panic. And be, the people who can't fend for themselves are left alone. We don't want that. We, we, we need people who, who have those basic skills and who are organized in some sort of way so that if something were to happen uh, below uh, the, the, the severity of a war, you would have these people with, with, with these skills who would be able to uh, keep society going. Um, and teenagers are, are one such group. And I think it would be fantastic if, if communities were to provide that training. And it would also be a way of, of helping teenagers certify themselves. It's, it's not easy uh, getting things on your CV when you're 16 or 17. Well, getting resilience training and being a certified um, uh, resilience responder or, or crisis responder would be a fantastic thing. What kinds of gray zone aggressions do you think the White House would consider as going too far? Uh, we saw that President Biden's response to the Chinese spy balloons in early February was quite slow. Uh, so what do you think it's going to take? Do you think that the administration will take preemptive measures or just simply wait for another act of gray zone aggression to happen and then condemn it after the fact? The the Chinese spy balloon was such a fantastic example of gray zone aggression. So it was clear to everybody and everybody could see it. It was clear to everybody that something had entered U.S. airspace and we all watched it and, and wondered, you know, what is what is the Biden administration going to do about it? But if it had been a, a fighter jet, it would have been clear how the, the government should respond uh, 
the U.S. Air Force would have been called in to shoot it down immediately. But if it's a balloon, uh, it's not clear how you should respond. It's clear that it's something and it's there for everybody to see, but it's not uh, serious enough for the Air Force to, to shoot it down straight away. And that that's what took so long, I think, the deliberations within the government to, to figure out now what do we do about this everybody's watching we have to do something but shooting it down seemed uh, escalatory and in fact when eventually uh, the balloon was shot down the chinese accused the us of being escalatory so i think uh, what what uh, western governments need to do is to not not act preemptively but to signal through uh, through persistent deterrence signaling that if you, if a prospective aggressor, if they engage in aggression of any kind, um, including razor and aggression, there will be retaliation. At the moment, we only signal uh, engaging such deterrence signaling uh, with regards to military aggression. We say, you know, if you invade a NATO country, the whole of NATO will respond. But we don't signal anything when it comes to gray zone aggression. So, of course, countries will say, oh, in, in that case, we might as, as well do a little bit of it because they uh, they don't have any plan for how to respond or retaliate. And if they did have a plan, they, they would constantly talk about it to signal uh, that sort of deterrence by punishment. Um, so that's the first step. Western governments need to decide how they are going to respond if something happens, and then they need to consistently and repeatedly signal through uh, communications, uh, public communications, that there will be a price to pay. Yeah, that's a great lead into my next question, actually. Um, You stated in your testimony to the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Asia that gray zone aggression is gradual, hard to detect, and often hard to distinguish from the bustle of the globalized world. So therefore, it is imperative that democracies, including America's allies in the Indo-Pacific, better defend themselves against gray zone aggression. Uh, So pivoting just slightly, uh, as we've seen with states who commit acts of gray zone aggression like Russia and China, they don't particularly like that the United States is involved in their area of the world. So my question then is, as matters surrounding the war in Ukraine and Chinese tension with Taiwan continues to progress, um, what are going to be some of the challenges and risks for the United States to navigate these fraught relations with their allies in Eastern Europe and Asia? Yeah, so I think that the the most uh, one key as- aspect to bear in mind is that gray zone aggression is in the eye of the beholder. So what the US considers helpful activities around the world may be perceived by the countries in which the US engages in those activities as interference and as a result, uh, gray zone aggression. So if we look at what uh, Russia has done in, in Russia, the United States has done in Russia over the years, it has uh, the U.S. government and, and NGOs have funded uh, countless NGO initiatives on human rights, democracy, uh, in the environment, and so forth. And I think those activities have been funded and carried out with with good intentions. Um, but what matters is not the intention of. Um, of the country that does it. It's how the country where the activity takes place perceives it. And Russia has perceived it as interference and and as a result feels that it's legitimate to to uh, be aggressive back. Now, nothing can, can obviously justify a war against Ukraine, but Russia has been interfering in Western countries over the years. And 
it will say, well, you interfere in our country, so we can interfere in yours. What's the difference? And I think it's just something to bear in mind. You have to see a situation from the other side's perspective, uh, whether it, whether it, it be your, your, your spouse or, or boyfriend or girlfriend or partner, or, or whether it be the other country. You have to be able to see the perspective of the side from the other side's, uh, the, the situation from the other side's perspective. Uh, then how, how does that inform how the United States should behave today. I think the, the unfortunate, uh, or maybe the, just the, the, the reality, unfortunate or not, is that countries don't view liberal democracy as, uh, many countries don't view liberal democracy as the ultimate objective. They have may, other, have, may have other views on how a country, including theirs, should be run. And I think we as the West should have the humility to say, we have uh, our way of running our countries, it works well for us, but we should not assume that other countries uh, want their, their, their political systems to be like ours. And uh, we should wait for them to, to come and ask for assistance if they need it. Now, the implication of that is that we don't support uh, we end up not supporting uh, persecuted um, ethnic minorities, for example. Uh, and, and that is a terrible choice to have to make do, because we, we would then have to, um, have to resign ourselves to not be active in countries uh, that persecute, uh, let's say, ethnic or religious minorities uh, simply because, you know, we have to except that maybe other countries don't want to be like us. So it, it is a very fraught uh, situation and a fraught dilemma. But I think at the very least, um, we should tone down our rhetoric against countries that have uh, systems that are not liberal democracies uh, out of respect for the fact that, that other cultures are just different. And, and, uh, and we have tried spreading liberal democracy. We have given it a good go. And, and the countries that, that wanted it have adopted it in, in Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, those countries are now very successful liberal democracies. But we simply cannot assume that that's, uh, that's what works for every country. And if, if we continue doing it, then we invite uh, aggression and hostility uh, directed towards our countries uh, in the longer run. Uh, so how do you convince policymakers that gray zone threats are ones that need to be taken seriously? And what ultimately comes from things like your testimony to the House? I remember just a few years ago, it was difficult to convince people that gray zone aggression mattered. And, and people thought of it as uh, policymakers and others thought of it as, as, um, uh, as not a very big subject. And then COVID happened and people realized that, oh, there are there are crises other than war that can cause enormous devastation, and that's when people uh, policymakers started paying more attention to gray zone aggression. And then, of course, came the uh, Ukraine war, which is not gray zone aggression, but is obviously confrontation. But it, a sideshow of it is the confrontation between the West and Russia, um, and then came the confrontation with China, which is carried out. Uh, entirely in the gray zone. So um, I don't have to convince policymakers anymore. They they have they are discovering for themselves. Uh, and so I I suppose I can say Mother Nature has has 
has helped me make the case and China has helped me make the case. But but the bottom line is that now policymakers come to me with questions and invite me to be part of, of various fora for, for them to better understand uh, what this is and, and, and more importantly, what they can do to, to, to address it or try to at least reduce the harm it can do. Oh, wow. Uh, So this next question might be pushing a hot button, but I'm interested to hear your thoughts on it. Um, Would you consider TikTok to be a form of gray zone aggression, be it ever so small and seemingly harmless? And how do you suggest policymakers approach the issue of TikTok as it relates to national security? TikTok is not gray zone aggression as such, but it it does pose uh, a national security risk. And it, 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 the, that national security risk is not just relating to the data that the Chinese authorities have the right to access because TikTok stores uh, data in China. So that's why it has to, it's legally obliged to hand over to data to the Chinese authorities should they request it. But it's also um, the ways in which various organizations, individuals, countries can use TikTok for malign influence campaigns. And we know that young people in particular use uh, TikTok as one of their main sources of information. And they don't verify what's on there. So it's incredibly easy to uh, launch a malign influence campaign on TikTok and people are either too lazy or too ignorant to verify uh, or, or um, assess the information they receive on TikTok. And so you can essentially um, fool uh, a, a very large number of, of people, a, a significant minority of people in any given country. And, and as we saw with the January 6th assault, all it takes is a, an inspired group of people, uh, a very small minority, to act on uh, on falsehoods, and, and they can do... Uh, incredible damage. It's not just the damage that was done to the Capitol building, but the damage that was done to America's reputation as a beacon of democracy. So that's where I think uh, TikTok is is very dangerous. Now, I don't think it would be fair to say that it was thought up as a tool that you know to to subvert the West. It was thought up as a commercial offering, but that is the what it can be used for today, uh, along with with its offerings of, of cute animals and so forth. And uh, that's why it, it does warrant that sort of government attention or, or parliamentary attention that it's getting. Um, unfortunately, it's uh, as I think everybody your age and, and, and indeed my age by now knows it's also incredibly addictive. And I think if governments were to try to to ban use in, in any sort of wider sense of not just on, on government devices, but, but nationwide, that would be a, an uproar and rebellion because people are so used to, to this, uh, this service or, or this uh, platform by now that, that they can countenance parting with it, which is, it's, it's incredible, but that's where we are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, So my next question is about the intelligence community and the role that it plays in deterring gray zone aggression, if any exists. Um, And we kind of talked about this a little earlier uh, in the podcast in terms of seeing uh, gray zone aggression from the other perspective. Um, So I guess my question is, does involvement of the intelligence community in monitoring potential acts of gray zone threats, um, can that be seen uh, by other states as acts of grazing and aggression in itself? 
no country is under the illusion that that other countries don't keep it uh, under surveillance. So even friends spy on one another, and it's it's just a fact of life. Um, that that countries want to know as much as possible about other countries. So I don't think uh, intelligence operations or espionage operations as such would be perceived as as uh, gray zone aggression. It's just I think that you cross the line uh, of um, invoking uh, another country's um, displeasure when when you act overtly or you you try to instigate activities in your host country so for example if if uh, uh, intelligence officers were to to uh, instigate pro-democracy rallies in 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 countries that are not democracies uh, those countries those regimes would then uh, react very angrily and, and not just they would they have because uh, they have over the years uh, russia and, and other authoritarian countries have said oh you know such and such pro-democracy protest was uh, was instigated by the West, even when it wasn't. Uh, but but that's how sensitive they are to to Western interference. And and now you can see again the, the line between um, what we consider benign and benevolent activities like funding of of pro-democracy groups and, and instigating revolts is is very fine and we, we obviously the west wouldn't instigate revolt against um, against well i say of course the, the west makes the case that it doesn't instigate uh, revolt against against regimes even though it has done it on occasion um but even just the fact that the western organizations fund uh, sponsor and uh, underwrite uh, otherwise assist pro democracy groups is seen as as interference and I suppose it, it, to some extent uh, those host countries tolerate it, but then if if they get suspicions that oh intelligence agents are involved in somehow uh, getting rallies organized, that's when they will, uh, without a, a doubt, uh, hit back against the country that they suspect is behind it. And now for the final question, which we ask to all of our guests: What do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? Well, I suppose, uh, and this is probably not a very good answer to give to somebody who is in college, but uh, I would say I wish I had known how much lived experience matters uh, to your understanding of the world as opposed to what what you learn at university. So I, I um, uh, one of my subjects was political science, and we did... The, all the theories that all political science students always and international relations students always learn and, and uh, these theories that, that supposedly explain how decisions are taken. And then uh, when you go out in the world, you realize that actually policy is made on the hoof and, and uh, decision makers have to make decisions under various uh, uh, various stressful conditions, and they they uh, make decisions based on on the on the conditions that exist at that point, and uh, they can involve all kinds of of external criteria, um, and and they have very little to do with with the theory of the world uh, and that's that's why I wish I would have known I, I like those th- theories very much and then I, I I 
entered the real world and, and realized they, they don't matter. But of course, university education matters greatly. I'm not I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't study the theories, but that's what I wish I would have known. And then one other thing uh, that I think really matters, and that is to uh, to value people uh, with skills uh, and, and backgrounds and education uh, that are uh, non-academic as much as as we value academic background and academic background, academic skills, uh, because these people are the ones who are absolutely indispensable to the running of our society. And people like you and me uh, have the privilege of sitting here conver- conversing at, at, at desks, but uh, people out there um, uh, make sure that society run every every single second of every single day. They uh, from from rubbish collectors to supermarket workers to uh, electricians to uh, to engineers who look after the, the power supply. All of these people, and, and I I, uh, um, I suppose I I wish I would have known. Uh, I wish I would have had a bit more humility. Uh, when I went to university to realize that that uh, these are the people who really matter and, and I just have the privilege of, of being able to go after intellectual pursuits and, and hopefully at some point be paid to go after them even more. Yeah, that's some great advice. So thank you for your time. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society in a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.